God called us to speak difficult words at times in order to make us better. That involves uh, always having a bias toward the last. I'm Mitch. And I'm Missy. We're co-workers. He's the boss and we're married. And she's the boss. Together we host Good Faith Weekly, a podcast on faith and culture. What could possibly go wrong? Tune in and find out. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, Missy and I are going to catch up after being in Atlanta, Georgia for the week. And then later on the pod, we sat down with the Reverend Dr. George Mason, who has a brand new book out, The Word Made Fresh, Preaching God's Love for Everybody. It's available in bookstores right now. It's going to be a good pod, so stay tuned. Hello there, Missy. Hey, how are you? I'm doing quite well. How about you? I'm doing well. Coming off of a short work week this week because of the 4th. Yes. So it's been nice. We had a relaxing couple of days earlier this week, and now we're back at it again. Yeah, we've got some time setting up by the pool and uh, enjoying just a leisurely Independence Day. I cooked a brisket. What'd you think? It's decent. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> A little dry for you? It was very good. It was very good. We are still enjoying it. Uh, Always, always uh, room for improvement with you, isn't there? Always. I mean, you got to strive for something, right? Exactly. Exactly. Uh, well, we hope that you and yours had a, a great uh, holiday uh, week this week. And uh, But uh, we got a lot of things going on in the news, uh, a lot of things that we didn't talk about last week, Supreme Court cases and whatnot. But there's something specifically that I want to talk about this week because I think it's just vitally important. And it's the 10-year anniversary of the launch of Black Lives Matter. And to talk about it, we need to set some context. Is that okay? Mm-hmm. Okay, so back in 2012, uh, George Zimmerman shot and fatally wounded Trayvon Martin in Florida. And Trayvon, a 17-year-old African-American young man, just walking through his neighborhood complex, uh, minding his own business, but was wearing a hoodie. Zimmerman mistook him for someone threatening and shot and, and killed him. A year later, in 2013, the trial began in July of that year, and Zimmerman was found not guilty based upon the Florida law uh, stand your ground, meaning basically that if you feel threatened and your life or property is threatened, then you can use deadly force. And that is the defense Zimmerman used, and he got acquitted based upon that defense immediately. Following that verdict, as you can imagine, a lot of the country was astonished by that verdict, but more so the black communities were just appalled and irate. Devastated. Devastated, yeah, yeah, about this verdict. So after the verdict, just, you know, weeks later, a movement is launched by three women that just changes the fabric of our culture and has been influencing our culture and society ever since that day, and that is Black Lives Matter. It is the 10th anniversary of the founding of Black Lives Matter, and we owe them a debt of gratitude for bringing these kinds of issues to the forefront so not only we can talk about them, but we can advocate for change. And also just say it. 
Right. Just to be able to uh, say the word. Thank you so much because I still don't understand the controversy around that. Besides it, the proponent or critics of Black Lives Matter and just saying that phrase, exposing their bigotry and white supremacy. Right. I mean, because it's, you know, all you're saying is that Black Lives Matter. And then, of course, the critics or the bigots will say, oh, all lives matter. Well, of course they do, but it they can't matter. all matter until black and brown bodies matter too. Exactly. And we're showing again and again and again that they don't. Right. And that's 10 years later, you know, look how many cases we've had right. of more fatalities in, in that community. And, and for people to still wonder why that messaging is important is beyond me. Right. You know, and there's a couple of threads here I want to really kind of unpack before we get to our interview today. Um, the first one is this. Um, you know, what kind of progress have we made in 10 years? Because you think about uh, the death of Trayvon Martin, and then, you know, just a year later, you have the murder of Mike Brown. Uh, that's going to be a 10-year commemoration coming up in uh, 2024 and just I could the list can go on leading up to George for Floyd and then afterwards um do you think that we have made progress I mean we are standing up we're standing up in solidarity declaring black lives matter but and I even hate to say this it certainly seems as though the culture doesn't care and doesn't believe black lives matter Gosh, I don't know. I mean, I know we've had some guilty verdicts in these cases, yeah. um, which I, I, it seems so weird to celebrate that. It, it shouldn't be. No, I and, mean, I, yeah, and it, I get your point. There, I mean, this is not something to but celebrate. But we have seen some moments of justice it's almost, or justice adjacent decisions. It's almost relief that, right. wow, the system can work for us. But it takes this kind of advocacy and attention drawn to these matters for there even to be a semblance of justice prevailing in these cases. And, and that is, requires video, yeah. which we now all have access to sure, on our phones. Sure, sure, sure. And audio and, and all of these things. It's like we have to put it right in front of somebody's face before it's like, oh, okay, well, I guess that is an injustice. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's... A, a blessing, I guess, but also a little bit insulting that, you know, that's the point we have to come to in order to get justice for some of these victims. Mm -hmm. um, I think also we look at a very finite moment in time um, and you, it's hard to see that. Again, we have to look historically, like what is this going to look like, this blip in history? Sure. And I see, I understand that we have to kind of look from a 10,000 foot view, but at the same time, that doesn't help that mom who's grieving her baby right, right now today. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of this difficult question to ask. Have we made progress? It depends on who you ask. Mm -hmm. If I'm a grieving parent or a grieving spouse, then, you know, for me, that answer is no. Right. I think that is a, a, a really valid point because even if you were to look at the civil rights movement and you think of Emmett Till and the brave decision that his mother made after his lynching in the South to have an open casket back home so that the world could see what racism did to her son. Mm -hmm. 
And you think of the many other mothers and spouses who lost children and husbands and wives, and just the list goes on. The only thing that began to change that was people, especially in the black community, standing up saying, enough is enough. We cannot go. We cannot take this any longer. We're saying no to Jim Crow. We're saying no to this type of bigotry and systemic racism. And they marched and they got out on the streets and then people joined them. And then it eventually led to the Civil Rights Act, and which led to the Voters' Rights Act in 63 and 64. And so as I look at what's going on today in this movement, we mourn the loss of the Trayvon Martins and the Mike Browns and the Breonna Taylors. And again, the list goes on. But we've got to get out there and continue to demand that legislation be passed because the system is broken. I get really tired of the argument, Missy, of, well, what we really need to be doing is changing hearts and minds. That's not going to happen. It didn't happen in the South. It didn't happen back in the 40s and 50s, both in the South and the North, by the way, because racism you know, just did not, it did drift over the Mason-Dixon line. Mm-hmm. That argument fails every time because of the power of privilege and wealth and just the systemic systems that we have in place that keep people of color down. We've got to continue marching. We've got to continue to vocalize it. And we've got to continue saying Black Lives Matter. And just that intense fear of if I give you some of the power and privilege that I have, then I'll lose that. Right. So, I mean, at some on some level, legislation does need to come into place. Yeah. I mean, of course you want to change hearts and minds. Of course that's sure. the end goal. But until then, we need to do something about the fact that you can, you know, pretty much get a gun out of a vending machine, <laughs> you know? <laughs> pretty much. So. Sensible gun laws would be a great place to start. But th- And this is a great segue into m- the second thread that I want to talk about in this particular story. And that is the defense that George Zimmerman used to justify shooting Trayvon Martin. And that is the stand your ground laws. In many states now, if you feel threatened if your life is threatened or you feel your property is threatened, you can use deadly force. I don't understand the property portion of this. What in your possession of your things is more important than someone's life? Well, the argument is your home. That That is where you dwell. That is where your family exists. And if anyone were to invade that space, then you don't know what their intentions might be. Obviously, if they're a stranger and have not been given. Well, uh, sure. I mean, and so it, it's just, do you give permission to go ahead and use deadly force before they use it upon you? Well, that's, that's my life being threatened if someone's physically in my home. But right. I just, I think the and property thing is just kind of a, I don't know. Yeah. That's what gets me. I mean, there's it's problematic top to bottom, but... Yeah. But what's really problematic about this is that we have seen, and this is going to be strange here, the liberalization of that law over the last 10 years of that, what does it mean that you feel as though your life or property is being threatened? And 
even the cases. Apparently somebody knocking on your door. Exactly, exactly. And that's the cases that we've, we've heard about. And I know it's been going on probably for a long time, but the media brought it our, to our attention the last uh, year or so about you know young boys knocking on a door, just looking for directions home, getting shot through the front door, or, you know, two girls driving up a driveway, just trying to turn around and go the other way. And you know, some idiot behind a door starts blasting at them. It's just like, where have what has gone wrong in our society? How ha, how has such fear been instilled in us that we have to be be threatened by yeah someone in in our driveway or on our porch? Like I, that fear has been created. But it's also a fear as well as uh, there's a safety element to it that I can now I have the freedom and right to shoot anybody I want to on my property because. The law says I can. That's got to change. There, I mean, there has to be justified reasons. I mean, you know, I'm a big proponent of sensible gun legislation, but these kind of laws that have continued to evolve over time and give people permission to basically just blast anybody they want to if they feel threatened or their property is threatened. It's just maddening. So I beg legislatures, I beg people who are advocates in this field to speak up, to stand up and to march, call, whatever you need to do, because after 10 years, we still have to say black lives matter. And the reason because of that is because black lives are continuing to be. Numbers don't show that. Statistics don't show that. Oh, really? Research doesn't show that, that black lives matter. I mean, oh. you know, we're still, <laughs> that's what I'm saying. No, oh, yeah. sorry. Let me clarify. What we are showing the world on paper is that yeah. they, they True. don't, and we need to keep saying it. Right. You right. know, I mean, I good grief. Look at any, study about access to healthcare, education, or murders, all of the things. Yeah. We are, when, what, what's, you know, my Angela, when someone shows you who they are, believe, believe them. them. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like we are showing exactly the world who that, we are. That's a great reminder, great reminder. Well, we're going to change uh, topics here a little bit, but not so much so because we're about to talk to a pastor in Dallas, Texas, who has been standing up over his career, speaking from the pulpit, advocating for justice uh, on many, many different issues. And now he's got a brand new book out that we're going to talk to him about. The Reverend Dr. George Mason, his new book is The Word Made Fresh, Preaching God's Love for Every Body. And so Missy and I sat down with George, who's a good friend, also a good friend of the pod, and I uh, hope you enjoy our conversation with yeah, him. Yeah, he is a good friend of the pod. He was instrumental in the formation of Good Faith Media and just somebody you and I both admire so much. Stay tuned. Have the last few years shifted your faith? I'm Brett Harris, and last year I walked away from the pulpit without a plan. I just knew where I was wasn't where I was supposed to be. And I'd love for you to join me as I wander and wonder about faith and scripture and how we can continue to follow Jesus' example, even when our path forward is unclear. Find God Knows Where today in your favorite podcast app.
Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, we've got a very special guest with us. The Reverend Dr. George Mason is the founder and president of Faith Commons and senior pastor emeritus at Wilshire Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas. He is a nationally recognized religious leader whose legacy includes innovations in clergy apprenticeship, interfaith initiatives, and community services. For many years, George has served as an op-ed contributor to the Dallas Morning News and has written for publications nationwide. He is a co-founder of the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship and teaches at Perkins School of Theology at Southern Methodist University. Faith Commons is an interfaith nonprofit organization that amplifies diverse faith voices for the common good. Its programs include George's podcast, Good God, featuring conversations about faith and public life. You can find out more about George and his many ministries at georgeamason.com. His new book, The Word Made Fresh, Preaching God's Love for Everybody, is now available. George, welcome back to Good Faith Weekly. Thank you so much, Mitch and Missy. Always good to be with you on Good Faith Weekly. Thanks. We've been looking forward to that this moment. And and I will congratulate you on your retirement and also say this is a little bit of an intervention because okay. you are in retirement doing it all wrong. <laughs> so <laughs> what do you mean he's doing it all wrong? Aside from the book, we're going to let you share a little bit about the multitude of projects oh gosh, that keep yeah. you going and keep you from settling into the recliner with a beverage and a binge worthy show. George, <laughs> there are so many to watch. What are you doing? Yes, I think my wife Kim agrees with you and is wondering the same thing. But it, it is, uh, I think the last time we had a conversation, there there was uh, sort of a, a kind of outline of how I'm getting ready to do this and what the conversation around retirement looks like. And uh, I think uh, rather than thinking about failing retirement, I'm trying to think about flourishing in it. Uh. Uh, that also means that um, you have to have a sense of purpose, right, um, that keeps you going. I, I ended up on a plane yesterday, um, headed back to Dallas, with a woman who had retired uh, and was very involved in nonprofit work. Uh, she now lives in Carmel, California, and, you know, she is a, a professional psychologist by training, but she said that there are really three things that she learned about uh, getting ready to succeed in retirement. The first is healthy life choices about, you know, eating and exercising and doing uh, balanced things like that. The second is to have a small group of friends. And the third is to have a sense of purpose, uh, being uh, involved in things that are life-giving. So I think I have uh, at least the second two of those. I'm, try I'm trying to get the first part down a little better in terms of uh, all of my uh, healthy eating and uh, <laughs> drinking and exercise choices and that sort of thing. But uh, but basically, I, I agree with that strategy, and it, it's keeping me busy. Uh, I also think, Missy, it's, uh, it's a little bit like, you know, they say, when people retire, there are three phases to retirement with regard to travel. Uh, there's the first phase, which is the go-go stage. The second stage <laughs> I'm imagining is the boots. Are there boots involved? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we got to get some go-go boots on this. Go-go <laughs> is like we're, we're always ready to go, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. The second stage is slow-go. And the third stage is no-go. <laughs> <You see? laughs> 
Yeah, right. Uh, uh, so I'm, I'm kind of in that um, go-go stage of yes. first stage of retirement, I yeah. would say. Well, you are a busy man, and we appreciate uh, all that you continue to do for the the church and just the gospel at large, and been a big, big contributor to Good Faith Media, and we thank you for all that you have done. So let's talk about the book, because really excited about the book, The Word Made Fresh. And one of the things that was exciting to me about hearing about this project was it brought back some memories because I think, George, you've heard me tell this story that when I was a young pastor in the Metroplex, I would drive in to the church on Sunday mornings and I would listen to your sermons and Missy did the same thing. Uh, going that to was church. how I knew you were legit. Okay, <laughs> what do you so mean by that? I think I've told this story before, but George's sermons would air on the radio a week delayed. Mm-hmm. Okay. So yes. when we would listen, we, we never drove together. We had little ones. So you sure. would go, then I would go anyways. So I would listen to George and I remember it was your July 4th sermon one year, probably, I mean, 20 plus years ago. And yeah. so I was listening again. So this was the next week after, and, and I listened to your July 4th sermon and it was so much of the same ideas and concepts that Mitch preached. I'm like, Oh my goodness, you actually know what you're talking about. So there you go. <laughs> he validated you in my mind. That's fantastic. All right, we're supposed to be interviewing. George. Yes, that's exactly right. Uh, well, the book is, uh, it, it contains sermons you preached at Wilshire Baptist church in Dallas for over 30 years. Putting this together had to be both enjoyable and daunting at the same time. So does the book include every sermon? And if not, how did you decide what sermons were included, and what do you hope readers will get out of the book? Well, the book uh, is only 81 sermons out of 33 years of sermons. So uh, clearly, it's not every sermon. Right. And honestly, it's uh, more a labor of love from some people that are close to me than it is my own effort. It was uh, the product of a a gift that the church uh, wanted to give me on retirement, and they originally thought that they would just collect my sermons into uh, one big volume, I guess, and, you know, have it as uh, a, an archival sort of thing and maybe a coffee table book, uh, something like that. And they, they were going to present it to me last September uh, or last Sunday of, of August last year, my last Sunday uh, as senior pastor. And it turned out that this this group of four, uh, Gail Brookshire, Annabelle Worley, uh, Jay Call, and Ju- Julie Merritt Lee, three of whom were pastoral residents at Wilshire years ago, and Gail uh, having been uh, a longtime friend and appreciating uh, the preaching uh, over, over time, uh, she... Uh, really helped to organize that, I would say, with with Anne. And they actually divided up 33 years of sermons, and uh, I guess, I don't know, 1,400 sermons or so they had to uh, collate, listen to, read, decide, and it was, uh, a, you know, a, a massive project for them. Most of that work was done by them, and then it turns out that this took a different shape. We got a a publisher, and the publisher had some ideas, and uh, ultimately it came to be more thematic in terms of sections of the book. 
Uh, and uh, yeah, so there, there were there were a lot of discussions about which ones were not going to make it and which ones were. <laughs> Uh, but ultimately, we ended up with these 80 as being, uh, I suppose, uh, maybe not so much just are these the best 80, but are they representative of the breadth and the emphases of my ministry across time? Mm. And uh, do they uh, sort of achieve the ends of, uh, I think, representing uh, the the bigger theme of what it means to say that we are preaching God's love for every body. Mm, love that. So George, as we kind of alluded to a moment ago, I am myself a recovering preacher's wife <laughs> and have listened to many sermons. And I know very well that the best moments are often the behind the scenes moments. So I'm going to ask you a few questions. <laughs> behind the scenes if you, right. you may not have an answer to all of them but I, I bet I'm not the only one who'd like to know the answer to these so we've all seen the viral videos of tongue-tied pastors and the unfortunate for the pastor but fortunate for the audience <laughs> slip-ups we know you're a pro but no one can preach as long as you have without an occasional snafu do you recall any specific instances well, I mean, there were, you know, little things that would happen, like um, when I remember when Johnny Versace uh, was uh, murdered, and uh, it, I knew who Johnny Versace was, a designer and all of that, and somehow or other in in the sermon, I just sort of glanced down at my notes when I was about to talk to him, and I looked, and the way his name was written, I called him Johnny Versace. <laughs> and, I mean, what, what in the world? I, I, I never really even thought that his name would be anything but Versace. Yeah. But, yeah, you know, so you do things like that, and, uh, you know, I. but, I, I mean, along the way, there are the wedding stories where I've, you know, I've said, um, Things like, uh, will you uh, take this woman to be your happily bedded wife? You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, of course. <laughs> right. Yeah, he does. <laughs> you know, uh, will you place this thing on her ringer? You know. Yeah. Right. 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 <laughs> There's always these little things that come out, right? That you wonder how in the world did I do that? And oh, I could take that back. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, well, I got you beat, George. I called the bride by the ex-wife's name one time. <laughs> <laughs> we'll we'll tell that story in the, in the it, it did not go well. <laughs> the marriage still. How is that honorarium, Mitch? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So my next question, I may have to explain this a little bit, but can you recall a best worst critique of a sermon? And I'll give this example that happened to Mitch right after Sunday service. Uh, one time this woman came up to him who was on the search committee, the pastor search committee. And she said, you know, I just really don't care for your preaching style, but you're the perfect preacher for this church. <laughs> oh, wow. Thanks. <laughs> like right after church. Can you recall one of those moments? I know you've had them where someone just, as you're, they're shaking your hand on the way out the door says this thing and you just, think, wait, what? <laughs> you know, I, I have a, a, someone who became a dear friend and I actually performed his wedding, but he, he grew up Catholic and 
in the early years of uh, my pastorate, uh, he used to complain about my preaching because he felt like I was too happy. Uh, you <laughs> How know, dare he, you? Catholic, he, he valued a level of suffering, and he thought my preaching lacked the, the, uh, the, the I don't know, moodiness or the gravitas or something, that uh, I was just too uh, positive or something of that nature. But I've had people who, you know, have come up to me and, I think what what happens to all of us is the people who come up to tell us that our preaching is getting better, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which which has that other kind of sense of <laughs> men were really terrible when you first started. You <laughs> get better, and of course, I think it also betrays something that we all kind of know, but we don't think about, and that is when a pastor comes to a congregation the pastor brings his or her voice that is developed in a certain way over time for preaching in other contexts. And the congregation has been in place and their ears are tuned to another frequency for another preacher. Mm -hmm. And so it takes time for the preacher to, uh, to sort of tune her voice and the congregation to tune to the frequency of that voice until there's kind of less noise. Right. And Mm -hmm. until there's, there's a sense of, okay, we're all clear about this now. And some of that early on for me at Wilshire was that my predecessor was a storytelling preacher from uh, the uh, mountains of, uh, of North Carolina. And so he was, he was still kind of had a kind of rural uh, storytelling sense. He, he never found a G at the end of an ING that he didn't drop, you know, and <laughs> yeah, yeah. it was folksy. Yeah, sure. And I'm like this Yankee who defines more of the, um, the model of Marshall, Marshall McLuhan, who's, said that Northern culture is literary and Southern culture is oral. And, you know, so I would have my sermons were written as a script and then I would have to sort of perform them in a sense of delivering them as an oral art. But I, I I never was able to get that Southern blessing where people would say, Oh, and can you believe he did that without a note? (laughs) That's, that's the thing in the South that they say, oh, oh yeah. he's good because he didn't have notes. Yeah. Well, to me, that's almost like unprepared, right? You yeah, know? Sure. So, George uh, actually taught me a great uh, trick one time. Uh, I used to, when I was living down in uh, Dallas-Fort Worth, uh, George would host a preaching practicum each year that uh, we would attend. And uh, there was one time he was talking actually about a critique from one of the, his parishioners that accused him of not preaching the Bible enough. Oh, uh, yeah. And so George said the very next week, all he did was put a Bible on the pulpit and like touched it and lifted it up every now and again. It could have been the same sermon, but then all of a sudden this prisoner thought he was really preaching the Bible. <laughs> I think one of our recent presidents tried the same thing. <laughs> that is true. Yes, but it, 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 has, uh, it, it does have uh, something of the psychology of the visual, right? right sure. It's the, yeah, well, 
So my next question, George, you have three children. And if my math is correct, six grandkids now? Yes, and a seventh on the way. Oh, congratulations. congratulations. So I happen to also know by experience that sometimes their commentary after your sermons (laughs) are the best. Do you recall any sort of critique or or, um, insight that your kiddos would come home with? Well, not as much a critique as, you know, I mean, they, first of all, I would never let them be surprised if I spoke of them in a sermon. Sure. Mm -hmm. We had kind of a rule in the household that when it came to, you know, the kids, uh, they would be the first to hear that they were going to be included in a sermon. And they had veto power over it, too. Sure. Uh, and so most of the time I would say they were happy to be included, uh, and, uh, I wouldn't embarrass them, of course. Um, so, so there was that, um, I I would say like most kids, uh, they, you know, paid attention about like everybody else, not just like preacher's kids. So Mm -hmm. to me, it wasn't like, I'm going to shame them, you know, but even if you just get a good sermon, dad, you know, that, that's enough. <laughs> yeah. That's like, you can live off that for a while. Um, so I wish I had a clever, uh, response. I do remember when, when my son Rhett was really little and, um, the offering plate was passed, he had a little clip on tie and he was taking it off and he was going to put it into the offering plate. And his mother asked him why. And he said, aren't these our top? Eyes and offerings. Oh, <laughs> I love that. That's amazing. <laughs> so, I mean, little things like that. Um, yeah, right. Oh, that's amazing. We have a story, not about a sermon, but our uh, younger son, when uh, one year he he'd entered grade school and it was approaching the end of school. And so the church was having, you know, end of school bash and all this. And he said, Dad, when's the last day of church? <laughs> yeah. That's great. I love it. Oh, so, yeah. So it's my understanding that every preacher has a sermon they wish they could preach. Did you have one? And did you get to preach it? I suppose my last sermon mm. is the sermon I always wondered what would be the sermon I would preach as my last sermon. Now, obviously, I'm still preaching around, sure. but that congregation. And yes, I did get to preach it. And yes, it's in the book. Good. Excellent. Uh, so, it's um, uh, it it was a deeply meaningful experience to get to do so, uh, and in many ways it was sort of um, a love letter to the church that I served for thirty three years. Love that. Excellent. Do you have a favorite? No, I don't think so. Uh, I have had a good time looking back on these and remembering when they were. Most of them, some of them I can't remember when they were, uh, what was going on, that sort of thing. Um, but uh, I, I will say that I, while I don't have a favorite, I have least favorites, and they didn't make it into the book. <laughs> <laughs> I want that edition. <laughs> um, yeah, so, you know, I mean, look, there, there are lots of times when you look back and you think, what was I thinking there? Um, sure. Like uh, one of the uh, people that worked on the, the book 
said, you, you seem to have gone through a, a phase of liking Christopher Columbus a lot. <laughs> and, and, and then you sort of realized, you know, he wasn't that great a guy. And what about the Native Americans and yeah. all that? You know, so there, you do, there is an evolution that sure. we all have, and whether it, it means being woke or, or just becoming more aware of conditions. Yeah. I think that's, that's probably true. So turning things a little more serious, do you remember a particularly challenging sermon you had to get up and preach? Oh, well, yes, there were several that were um, deeply uh, concerning to me. Um, one of them was, of course, after 9-11, mm-hmm. the Sunday after 9-11, and uh, how to um, be a pastor to a congregation where you knew you were not just really speaking to your congregation. Uh, You were speaking to a lot of people who would be overhearing it. And that actually is something that you alluded to earlier. You were going to be hearing that on the radio the next week. Uh, And nowadays uh, it is live streamed or it can be found on YouTube just hours after it's done, and it stays there forever, right? So you have to also be aware that you're not only speaking to the people right in front of you, but you're speaking to a much larger audience, and that may even include people who don't share your faith. Uh, and so um, being able to be sensitive to all the dynamics, like after 9-11, Uh, were a pretty significant thing, Uh, how to speak about uh, Islam Mm -hmm. uh, and differentiate it uh, from uh, the the terrorists that that, uh, attacked us. So that was one for sure. Um, Another one was in 2016 uh, when our church made the decision to uh, vote for full inclusion of LGBTQ persons. And uh, there, I knew that in that sermon, I had to address the elephant in, in the room. And that is, I, I said plainly, for some of you, this is the last time you're going to be here. Wow. Um, because you've made up your mind that if this vote goes away, you didn't want uh, that you can't remain here. And uh, you're wondering, um, how will this church feel about me when I'm gone? And I had to think seriously about that myself, uh, how I would uh, prepare myself for that to take place and how I would feel about people who had been on the other side. Uh, And uh, sure enough, 300 people left our church within a month or so. Um, But I said, you know, we're going to, what I said to them is, Um, If you're wondering how we feel about you, we're going to count you among the saints, Um, people who have made this church uh, what it is today, and we're going to thank you. Uh, So our spirit's going to be gratitude, and we're going to bless you. And if you come back for any reason, uh, we want you to feel uh, that this is a place of hospitality for you. I don't remember the exact words I used, but that was... um, a really challenging thing to do, uh, given the circumstances. George, you've been preaching for over three decades. Um, 
you know, obviously style and time, uh, time as far as history has changed. But over those three decades of preaching, how has preaching changed you? Uh, I, I think it's a question that every preacher should ask himself or herself. The, the best answer I could give to you is that it was a part of my lifelong faith formation. So you, you can't do this work well, it seems to me, and speak to other people about who they are, who God is, what God is calling for them to be, if it doesn't first work itself through your own soul. So the weekly rhythm of preparation for preaching was part of my spiritual formation, uh, part of the way that I was changed. I, I would say to be more specific about it is that I, and maybe you, Mitch, to some degree of maybe less so because of our age difference, but I think that I was brought up and educated theologically uh, in, in ways that mostly emphasized God's order mm -hmm. of society and the design of it, and that our duty was to uh, be in the sin management business uh, and to keep uh, everything together uh, and to preserve the order that God had, had made and that we were to teach people to look out for those things that would um, break that apart. Mm -hmm. uh, that That's sort of almost the definition of conservatism, sure. right, is yeah. is to, um, to to maintain that. I, I think we saw that this week, this past week, with Al Mohler, who uh, was, you know, talking about biblical authority with respect to women as preachers. And, you know, his perspective is that uh, that once you go down that road, you're inviting chaos, that God had a design for the world that uh, we have to uphold. And that design requires that men be in leadership and women be submissive to them. I think over time, uh, reading the Bible, preaching it, studying it, and all of that, I changed to a new creation vision. Um, not the old creation, but the new creation. Uh, to an understanding of God that was more focused on what is to come. And to aligning uh, the church to what is to come rather than to what was. Mm -hmm. And so my vision for the faith and my preaching was, was more about uh, calling for change that would be uh, more in line of justice and equity, of, uh, of, of a peace that sometimes requires that we stir things up uh, and challenge the existing uh, structures. Sure. Yeah. So 
George, I think we would probably all agree that this is a very challenging time to be standing behind a pulpit each week. Do you have any advice to offer pastors today as they step behind that sacred desk to deliver a sermon? Yes. There's a sermon in the book called Faithful Betrayal. And it's based upon uh, Jesus' experience in the synagogue in Nazareth when he was uh, essentially blessed to begin with Uh, They were so proud of him, and then he said difficult words to them, and then they chased him out of the synagogue and wanted to throw him off the cliff. And I would say that we have to keep in mind who called us. And before the church called us, God called us. God may have called us through human voices in the church, but God didn't call us to be be house prophets. Uh, God didn't call us to be um, people who were there to tell everyone how wonderful things are the way they are. Um, God called us to speak difficult words at times in order to make us better. And that involves uh, always having a bias toward the last, is another sermon in the book, Um, both last in the sense of last things and also people who are last because the last shall be first. Mm. And so I would say keep in mind that you are always faithful to something or someone, and in doing so, you are always betraying something or someone at the very same time. Uh, This is, I think, why Jesus said, I've not come to bring peace but a sword and to set a family against one another, because there's a sense in which, you know, what happens often is we have to choose between pleasing the congregation or our family of origin or our small social network that uh, of friends and making sure we comply and we are faithful to who and, and to their vision of the world or their political party or some such thing. Sure. And then in doing so, we will betray the gospel or we have to be faithful to the gospel. And we know that sometimes that will cause strife uh, with us and, uh, and something, someone uh, in it, that, that we love and care about. Uh, this is not work for the faint of heart. Uh, this is this is work that you have to be called to because uh, you are not an employee of the church. Uh, you have to have a free soul and a free voice. Yeah, love that, George Mason. His new book, The Word Made Fresh, Preaching God's Love for Everybody, is now available, and you're going to want to pick up a copy of it and take it to Wilshire and, as you see, George around Dallas somewhere, have him sign it. Because, Maybe uh, you'll find him on a golf course. Well, I that's know, but right, I've yeah. heard. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or you're teaching at Perkins or something that's like right. that. So, that's right. uh, but yeah, that's yeah, great. So, But before we let you go, George, we've got one last question for you. 
So, George, I would just want to say, as you mentioned earlier, you prefer to think that you are flourishing in retirement and not failing. And I would agree with that and say that you also flourished in your career. And I thank you for continuing to be engaged and be doing the work. So, George, as you know, our tagline at Good Faith Media is there's more to tell. So in light of your work and our conversation today, what is your more to tell? That there are people coming up behind us who have voices that they uh, need to be able to use and some of us need to get out of the way so they can they can have their place and their time uh you know that's that was part of my reason for retiring uh when i did is to uh give way uh to the next generation and i think sometimes we have a hard time uh leaving the spotlight um and uh letting someone else have the microphone so to speak but uh, the more to tell is a confidence, I think, that the next generation uh, is going to um, have a powerful influence too, that we are not the last generation of faithful people out there. <laughs> and so the, the more to tell is to start listening behind you, not just ahead of you. Yeah. Could you get that message to DC? <laughs> Sorry, just asking. Get a couple of them to re retire so the new, the new generations can emerge. Beautifully so, said. Yeah, Thank very you, well said. George, thanks as always, my friend. It's a delight to visit with you and talk with you. We are still inspired by your ministry. So thank you thank so much. You. And, and I'm grateful for you guys too. God bless you. so fun to, to talk to him. It felt a little bit for us like a full circle moment because he was so influential in your early days as a pulpit preacher. And uh, so that was kind of, it was fun. I, I wouldn't have thought, I don't know, 30 years ago or so. I can remember, it's so funny you mentioned that because I can remember early on when we started listening to George on the radio that I caught myself at times mimicking his cadence. <laughs> <laughs> Because, you know, I wanted to be the next George Mason. <laughs> well, you just, as you listen to people, you pick up on their mannerisms. Yeah. Like, you, you know, I'm pretty guilty of that. You're so, very guilty I mean, depending that. on what region I'm in, if I'm in the South or if I'm in Boston, I drop my R's. Yeah, I mean. you automatically pick up somebody else's uh, yeah, dialect. I'm guilty. Cadence, uh, so, yes, I, I absolutely. take that. So as I was, um, as we were talking to George and kind of asking him some questions about preaching and uh some funny things that happen. I happened to just a couple of days ago, come across, I was digging through again, I've been cleaning out boxes of things. So all of our listeners are, are, I don't know, getting the gift of all of our mementos lately, but I found a piece of paper with a uh, titled poems by a preacher's kid. Oh dear Lord. <laughs> <laughs> I, have, I have a sneaky suspicion. This is our oldest this preacher's is our oldest. kid. <laughs> it's not dated, but I'm guessing this is, he was probably about seven or eight years old sitting in church. This is like a spiral bound paper that has been ripped out of a, a notebook. So I thought I would read these before we get into kind of the heavier, okay. um, I guess, outtakes of this, but so poems by a preacher's kid. This one, the first one is titled <laughs> and goes like this. I'm stuck here in this kingdom of boredom. The kids are coloring, some are reading, most are sleeping, some are talking to their friends. Oh, dear God, when will this sermon ever end? <laughs> same, brother, same. <laughs> 
Okay. So the next poem on this sheet is The Way I See the Bible. Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens, the earth, and two buck-naked people (laughs) who ate from a forbidden tree. Cain killed Abel, that jerk. (laughs) To find out the rest, look in the Bible, why don't (laughs) you? Oh my gosh, that is fantastic. So there's just some funny things that come with uh yeah, yeah. being a pastor and having your own kids sitting at Much love to, to the preacher's week. kids uh, out there in the world. You've had to listen to a lot of sermons. A lot of sermons. <laughs> but I thought um really remembering and thinking about just the sheer number of sermons that he must have preached over his I mean, I know he had thirty three years at Wilshire and I'm not sure how many before that of um preaching each week and started thinking even in your situation, I mean, you were preaching for, I don't know, 25 or so years and mm-hmm. just the challenge of every week coming up with something to say that's inspiring, that's um, insightful, that's educational and all of these things is really difficult. And for, for him to do this for so long and do it so well and be in one place is just, is really quite an accomplishment. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I've talked about this uh, from time to time, even when I was uh, in local church ministry. You know, it does take a tinge of arrogance on on someone's part to you know conclude that you're going to walk behind a a pulpit each Sunday and people are just dying to know what you have to say that week. Right. <laughs> uh, but what's interesting is that you know people enjoy taking a break from the monotony of media and busyness and just set for an hour in worship, but then also just to hear the words of an individual, inspire, challenge, uh, make someone think uh, in another way that maybe they didn't, they didn't do so throughout the week. And I love what he said. And I, I think that, you know, as we talked about in the opening, we are living in a really finite period of history and, and we get kind of caught up in our own little moment and, in the grand scheme of things when, you know, there's, there's been challenging times throughout the years, certainly. And, and that those challenging societal cultural times get especially difficult for pastors and preachers who have mm-hmm. to continue to be prophetic. And sometimes when that is not going to bring you favor with mm-hmm. your congregation and he, um, said, and I'm paraphrasing, but sometimes to be faithful to something or someone, you have to betray something or someone else. And I just kept thinking of the last, I don't know, almost 10 years, like you said, since Black Lives Matter, just the challenge that pastors and preachers have had each week, getting behind the pulpit and being prophetic in a time where just emotions are so charged culturally. I don't remember a time when it was so difficult for pastors to be both prophetic and priestly. Being prophetic, meaning speaking out on the matters at hand, what's going on in the world, uh, having a Christian perspective and response to what they see as injustices rising up across the um, communal landscape. But at the same time, the world is suffering, whether it was the global pandemic or uh, the need for racial justice or economic decline or ecological disasters. The, 
the congregants sitting in the pew each and every week, those people who have their ears tuned into the pastoral voice, are needing some comfort as well as a word of justice. And so within the preacher, there is this tension of being both prophet and priest. And I just can't imagine what it would be like to do that day in and day out right now in this period of time. Right now, yeah, especially. And he mentioned two um, sermons in particular, his the one after 9-11, and I remember you struggling that week as well mm-hmm. with what do you say? Um, and knowing, like he said, that this is not just for the people sitting in your congregation, but your words will reverberate beyond that. And then when he said that he preached the sermon before the, the church voted to become welcoming and affirming, and, and I imagine that was just a really heartbreaking moment as well, knowing that no matter what was decided, that you're going to lose friends. And, and you're, it's a really strange position. We've talked about this before, where your your job, you are your boss is also your customer is also your volunteer base and is also your friend. So you have all these kind of mixed overlapping relationships with people. And so you go, you come to those times, those um, kind of fork in the road times. And, and you know that no matter which way your church decides to veer that, you know, you're, you're going to lose some, some folks and, so that's that's really difficult. I know it's very, we've been very through difficult. some of those moments as well, and it's just my heart goes out to anyone still standing behind the pulpit these days. And there are certain people who can do this and do it very well, and we try to look towards those people, and I think George is one of those individuals that has Absolutely. done it well through his career. But as you were talking there, and you, and you know George was talking about getting behind the pulpit after nine eleven, I can remember the very same feeling. Not only nine eleven, but also when the last EF five tornado ripped through Moore, Oklahoma, mm-hmm. and we were pastoring. Or I was pastoring the church in here in Norman. It was just about you know four or five miles south of the epicenter, and. We had the children who were killed in the elementary school on that fateful day. And just trying to get behind a pulpit, especially when it happens to your community, and say a word, because a lot of the questions that were coming out of that were, where is God when things like this happen? And it's, it's, a, it's an important question. It's, an, it's a needed question. Um, and so I can remember getting behind the pulpit to try to be both prophetic and priestly, but mainly priestly to remind people that God was with the children. Even at that moment when their life on this world ended, that God was there holding their hand. God's presence was always constantly about And where I got that from was reading Eli Wiesel's book, Night. Wiesel, obviously, great humanitarian survivor of the Holocaust. He was a child in a uh, Nazi encampment during World War II. He tells a story at the beginning of Night about the hangings that happened in the encampments. The Nazis had put three or four on the scaffold and pulled the, the trigger door and they were hanging there and dead. And 
one of the Jewish prisoners said, where is your God now to the rabbi? He was standing there next to them. And the rabbi didn't say anything for a while, but then pointed at the scaffolding where the three Jews were hanging and said, there is God. And in that one sentence, it condemned what was happening, but at the same time offered solace to people who knew that they could be next. And to me, that is the great challenge of preaching. And it's what Walter Brueggemann calls the prophetic imagination to take these universal truths of the divine and attempt to communicate those to those of us who are finite, that need to be challenged, that need to be comforted, that have this constant desire to learn and to evolve. And that is our job as preachers, and it's a difficult one. It is. I think George has done it so, so well for many, many years. I miss being those drives uh, that we had to church on Sunday mornings where we were able to listen to him. I was just great to hear the news that somehow he uh, validated my profession <laughs> and my calling in your eyes. I, it was so, up to that point, you know, it was like, it was so long ago. And, and so you were so new in doing this job. I was also new in, you know, being married to a preacher. So I don't know. I just assumed you kind of live in your own little bubble and you say your own little sermon. And, and so when I heard him, you know, preaching a sermon that basically had the same points, the same ideas um, that you prefer, I was like, oh, wow, that's, that's really cool. <laughs> Someone I really respect and admire, and you're kind of coming up with those same, th- I don't know. <laughs> so, Sorry. Uh, did, 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 did it confirm that I wasn't stealing stuff or that I could possibly be There's plagiarized? There's no way you could have plagiarized it because I heard him the week after. True, so true. no, but just, it, it was good to know that someone that, that we so admired or I so admired is right. also, you know, someone that, that you're emulating and in, in sure. your thoughts and deeds and words. So okay. I, I really appreciate it. We'll close out with this. Um, when George said in his more to tell, basically that some need to get out of the way and to have confidence that the next generation will have power and influence um, and start listen, start listening behind you. Mm. Basically I'm paraphrasing, but um, yeah, I thought that was a great point to make that he's, you know, because I think George obviously still has so much to give so much ministry to do. And he's showing us that and all that he's involved in and all the good work that he's doing, but also recognizing that, you know what, I have confidence in this next generation, that they do have something to say. And I think that's where societally a lot of people forget that, you know what, there are some coming up behind us that absolutely are prepared to take that pulpit or to take that microphone or to take that platform. That is one thing that I have not been surprised by, but have been surprised about how much I have enjoyed this stage of my career that even though I'm not preaching as much as I did you know, in, in local parish ministry, that listening to these new young voices, they are brilliant. Amazing. Just brilliant. And I just, each time I hear them, whether that is a conference or on Sunday morning somewhere, traveling about, I'm just, just so excited about the future of the Christian movement, 
because they're just brilliant human beings and they do such a great job voicing everything that needs to be voiced in this moment. It's just funny how that definition of the younger voices keeps getting a little bit older. (laughs) (laughs) Those young whippersnappers at 45. (laughs) (laughs) But no, I do think there are some brilliant young minds coming up behind us. I mean, in, you know, faith-based work as well as just in, you know, political advocacy, social justice work that just are to be absolutely admired and amplified and we should get out of the way when we need to. Yep, absolutely. So, so good conversation with George this week. Uh, we will be back in two weeks. We're going to take next week off due to summer breaks and travel, but we'll be back with another guest and uh, some conversation. So until next time, keep living good faith. You've been listening to Good Faith Weekly, hosted by Mitch and Missy Randall. This weekly podcast from Good Faith Media discusses matters of faith and culture. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast and give us a like and a glowing review. We produce the podcast out of Norman, Oklahoma. Our music comes from Pond 5. And we're supported by listeners like you. Learn more about us at goodfaithmedia.org.